Anytime I get up here to teach life lessons and I have Foo Fighters going, I know it's going to be a good morning, right? So, um, good morning. Uh, my name is Jordan, and I'm the adult ministry pastor here at Soul Sanctuary. And I'm happy to be back in the gathering this week after being gone for a couple weeks of vacation. Uh, my wife and I were able to take some time off, and so, and it was fun. It was good. One thing I've noticed, it was our first vacation with our daughter. And one thing I've noticed is that I don't sleep as much on vacations anymore as I used to, right? And so I came back refreshed, though. It was good just to kind of take some time off and to, you know, kind of not think. And it was fun. It was great. But this morning, I'm glad to be here. And uh, we're going to be talking about following and what it looks like to follow Jesus. Um, I hope everyone's been enjoying summer yourselves. And if not, then, you know, we got five weeks left, so please get on that, okay? Um, not to start off with an unsettling reality or anything, but, you know, summer is going quick. It's interesting. Now that I have many friends who are teachers, I've realized that I kind of got to be quiet with that whole, you know, summer's flying, it's going to be over soon kind of talk, right? Anyone know what I'm talking about? I was talking to my buddy the other day who's a teacher, and I looked at him, and I'm like, man, has summer ever flown, right? Uh, it's just about done. And then I realized summer is gold for him, right? I need to kind of you know, calm down with this a little bit, or I'm going to wake up one day unfriended on, like, social media or something. Um, but summer, you know, will go on forever, teachers. I'm, I'm here for you, okay? We live in this tropical climate of Winnipeg. It's going to be fine. But this morning, I'm looking forward to sharing the life lesson. And speaking of unsettling realities, we're about to take a look at a passage of Scripture this morning. As we continue in our series, The Upside Down Kingdom, a study through the book of Matthew, where Jesus is about to cut through all the celebration, all the excitement, all the fun stuff that is happening, and he's going to bring some hard words about what following him will really look like. And so the last couple of weeks, we've been continuing in this book, and last week, Pastor Shauna... I heard did a great job of teaching through the healings of Jesus, three different accounts where Jesus healed people and broke cultural barriers and did all sorts of things that might have gotten him in trouble and there's excitement and things are going great. And then we're going to pick it up this morning, kind of where that leaves off. But first I want to start just by asking a question. Um, who here has ever made an excuse? Anyone? Anyone ever made an excuse about something? Okay, six of us have, right? But I think more than not, I think most of us would probably say we have made an excuse before. Of course we have. You see, excuses are often convenient ways of saving face or maybe sometimes even avoiding awkward conversations or discussions. Um, I was thinking of some common excuses this past week that we made, right? Uh, when you know you said you wanted to go for that run, right? And uh, you see a cloud in the air. You convince yourself sometimes that it's going to rain. Anyone been there before? Um, usually for me, it's when I want to cut the lawn, right? It's like, oh, it's going to rain today. I guess I better hold off, right, until, until, until the cloud looks better. And usually it ends up looking like that picture, right? There's one little cloud in the air. Uh, not too much is happening. But an excuse is an excuse. I ended up cutting my lawn yesterday, and as I was preparing for this talk, I remember thinking to myself, it really is going to storm today. I better hurry up, so maybe I won't do the best job, right? Maybe I'll just kind of cut corners here because the rain's coming. And we find ourselves doing this sometimes, I think. I think we find ourselves making excuses and, uh, you know, trying to get out of things. Um, what about when you're running late for something? When you're claiming to have a good excuse to be late and, you know, really, you know in your heart of hearts that you're really just calling it in. Has anyone ever been there before? You know, traffic was terrible. Oh, that's because you still haven't left the house, right? Or maybe there's the classic excuse. Um, and, and this one, I think, might hit close to home today, right? That, that whole excuse that, oh, really? You actually sent me an email? I, I don't think I got that. Anyone ever done this before? 
Um, it must have got lost, or, or for some reason I didn't see it. You know, anyone ever had this done to them? Or have you ever done this to someone else? Have you done this this week? I don't know. But there's an excuse, right? Like, oh, I didn't get it. It must be in my inbox somewhere. Or I must have, you know, I must have not looked at my phone, or I must have, I must have missed that. But we find all sorts of reasons for excuses when we want to get out of something or when we want to avoid taking responsibility. You see, excuses help too when we don't feel like sacrificing or when we don't feel like denying ourselves of something. There are times when excuses are somewhat legitimate, but probably more than not, they are just a way of getting around something that we don't want to do. And in our passage this morning, we're going to see why making excuses or why avoiding responsibility really doesn't work as people who are called to be about God and to be about God's kingdom. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 8, go to your phone, or please follow along on the screens. I have it up there for you as well. But we're going to continue in Matthew here, and let's start reading. It says, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake, and then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. That is our text for today. You know, it's interesting for me because normally I like to pick the text where I could just rejoice in the grace of God, right? I like to pick the text, you know, where I talk about the love of God and, you know, where we just, you know, get excited about something neat or we learn something that's very applicable. But today's text is one of those texts, texts that is more difficult on us and it makes demands upon us and upon our lives. And so to set the scene here, we have Jesus, and he, had, he has began healing people, driving out evil spirits, and his teaching was like no other. Popularity was growing. People were hearing about him. All who heard his words, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, marveled at his teaching as one who spoke, not just by his own accord, but who spoke with authority, the Bible says. And now because of all the excitement, because of all the miracles that the people have witnessed him doing, the crowds are gathering around him and they're starting to follow him around. And so here, Jesus has all sorts of people following him. He sees the crowds growing, but he does something when the crowd starts to grow and when people start following him, he does something that perhaps we wouldn't expect him to do. But he asks his disciples to withdraw and he says it's time for us to cross over to the other side of the lake. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems a little bit, you know, not necessarily what I would do. You see, already in this passage, Jesus may be surprising us. Because many of us, I think, would think big crowds, well, that's awesome. That's excellent. You know, we need to embrace this moment. We need to stay here. We could probably throw services for weeks on end that would just be packed out. Imagine the people we can reach. Imagine how many people you would come in contact with. But Jesus has something else in mind here, and decides rather than embrace the crowd that day to step aside, and actually in some ways he kind of avoids it. And so already this is warring with our thinking a little bit. And as he was giving these orders to his disciples with all the hype and intrigue surrounding him, he's approached by a couple of people. Let's refer to them as would-be disciples this morning. Would-be disciples. 
and they declare their desire to follow him, but their commitment to follow seems to come from either a place of misguided commitment or it comes with an excuse or it comes with conditions as they approach Jesus to follow him. The first guy is a teacher of the law, a scribe, if you will. And his intrigue in Jesus is in and of itself a bit of a miracle in itself because Jesus was, was kind of teaching against many of the things and legalistic ways of his fellow colleagues, of the teachers of the day. Jesus' is teaching went against a lot of the legalism and a lot of the things that people were teaching at the time, and yet this scribe, this teacher of the law, was intrigued by Jesus. He liked what he had to say. You know, and at the end of the day, who knows? Maybe it was the miracles. Maybe it was the signs that accompanied it. Maybe it was the authority in which Jesus taught with. But either way, this teacher of the law had decided that Jesus was a teacher who was worth following him. And that's how he greets him. He greets him with that very strong title, teacher, which is the same Greek word for the word rabbi. This word teacher is the same word that translates into the English from Greek, rabbi. And in these days, if you were seeking to become a rabbi yourself, there was an intense process of study and scripture memorization ahead of you. You had to memorize the first five books of the Bible before a certain age, and then you had to memorize the other side of it, and then you had to memorize all of it. And then you had to know how to work with the scriptures. You had to know how to apply the scriptures. You know, if you want a translation of what that looks like, imagine having to memorize the whole Old Testament and being able to work with it. That's the type of study, that's the type of effort that was put into becoming a rabbi in these days. And yet this guy hears something in Jesus' story, in Jesus' words that makes him want to follow him. And your goal, if you were seeking to become a rabbi, was to eventually submit yourself to another rabbi, to someone who's trained so that they can help you become like them. And that's what we see happening here. We see this teacher of the law approaching Jesus thinking, you know what, I want to be like this guy. I want to become like him. I believe that this guy is worth following him. William Barclay, in his commentary of Matthew, says this. He said, no sooner had the scribe, the teacher of the law, undergone this reaction, than Jesus told him that foxes have their lairs and the birds of the sky have a place in the trees to rest, but the Son of Man has no place on earth to lay his head. It is as if Jesus said to this man, before you follow me, think about what you're doing. Before you follow me, count the cost. It's like Jesus avoided the fine print altogether and was just straight out and was just honest. If you want to follow me, this is going to cost something. This is going to get inconvenient. This is going to cause you to change. It's probably not quite the response that this excited teacher of the law had, you know, expected or anticipated from Jesus that day. But Jesus didn't leave him guessing as to what was required if he were to follow him. Jesus didn't want followers who were swept away by a moment of emotion or a moment of feeling. But he wanted followers who knew what they were doing and in a sense knew what they were signing up for. And I think it's true for us to say in any sphere of life, in any part of life, we must be confronted with the facts first before we do something. How many of you would agree with me with that? Anyone ever went into a job or went into some place where you didn't have all the facts and then you wondered, whoa, how did I get here? Let me give you a couple examples. If you want to be a student, 
okay? And you have these aspirations to, you know, go into university or go into college. And you need to know that there's going to be a life and a process and a journey of studying ahead of you, right? And we're talking intense, deep studying, not necessarily what you're seeing the guy on the screen doing here, right? And so if you're going to sign up for something like that, you need to recognize that there is going to be an intense time of study required. How many of us have ever taken a job before when you take a job and you need to know what's required of you. You need to know what's required mentally. You need to know what's required physically, right? You don't want to get into something that you didn't know the facts first and you get there and you realize, you know, I can't do this or I'm not ready for this or I'm not qualified for this. I think about athletes. We have the Canada Games happening right now here in our city and uh, saw a bit of the opening ceremonies the other night. It was pretty amazing. It's a really neat time to see athletes around our country kind of come together and hang out. But you see, becoming an athlete requires an intense amount of self-denial and self-sacrifice and discipline. If you want to achieve your dreams, if you want to get to where you know you want to be, it's going to require effort, it's going to require discipline, and it's going to require time. And you need to know that before you enter into it. Otherwise, you have some surprises coming your way. Otherwise, you're going to be caught off guard. And so it's not uncommon to be confronted with the facts first. In fact, I'd go so far as saying that when we don't have the facts first and we get into something with little knowledge of the situation, there we will find ourselves in tension. We will find ourselves frustrated. We will find ourselves troubled because we weren't expecting this. How many of you have ever entered into something without fully knowing what you were getting yourself into? You kind of said, yeah, sure, I'll be there. Or yeah, I'll show up to do this. Then you left and your back felt like it was broken. Anyone? Uh, back in college, I remember in my um, second year of school, I didn't have a vehicle, and so a fellow student uh, asked me if I wanted to hang out, and of course I suggested to him, sure, are you into records? Are you into music? Let's go to the record store. And so I asked him if he wanted to go, and he's like, absolutely. And so we invited a couple other guys from the dorm, and we were headed to the record store, at least that's where I thought we were going. But before you knew it, we pulled into some area of the city that I'd never seen and some like abandoned warehouse it looked like. It was kind of an industrial area that needed some work. And um, it was this place that did great work for people and helped people with needs in other countries. And uh, funny enough, my wife ended up working there later on in life, uh, probably eight to eight years later. But I remember we ended up at this place, and at that point, I didn't know why we were there. And all of a sudden, some lady comes out to greet us, and she proceeds to take us on a tour of the facility and mentions that if we want to become volunteers at that facility, they could always use them. And this wasn't just like one of those tours where we walk through, you know, have a coffee, maybe take a pamphlet. This was like a two-hour commitment, right? And we were walking through this um, facility, and I felt so bad because what this organization did was so good. They did such great work. They were helping people overseas, and the whole time I was taking this tour, I was sitting there just offended the whole time thinking, but I thought we were going to the record store, right? I thought we were going to go look at records. I didn't sign up for this tour. I didn't sign up to come here and listen to this talk. And I felt bad because, you know, it was actually a good thing that was happening in front of me. But in my mind, my expectations were somewhere completely somewhere else. Needless to say, I got signed up for a tour that day that I knew nothing of, right? And I still might be a little bit bitter about it since I'm still telling stories about it, right? Uh, you know, probably about 14 years removed from this situation. 
But I thought we were going to go by and look at music that day and not look for ways in which to help others. Like, how bad does that sound, right? That just sounds terrible. Let's carry on before I, you know, say too much. But there was another man who wanted to follow Jesus. And he says to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus tells him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. At first, this appears to come off as a very tough and difficult saying. To the Jew, it was a sacred duty to ensure descent burial for a dead parent. This was his responsibility. This was something that he was supposed to look after. And if we just divorce Jesus' words from the context here, then many of us might be thinking, like, you know, can't we lighten up a little, Jesus? Isn't this guy doing a good thing for his father? And so the original uh, readers and the original hearers of this discussion might have been a little bit shocked at what Jesus said to this guy. But this past week I did some studying. And commentaries and many authors and scholars suggest that, that either his father had just passed away, but more likely what was happening in this situation was that his father was ill and had not passed yet. And so the idea of caring for him is also in play here. And that's potentially what is happening with this would-be disciple. And so many believe that what this would-be disciple was saying to Jesus was, I will follow you someday when my father is dead and when I am free to go. When I first looked after this, right? Look, look what he says in his, his words. Lord, first let me go and do this. He was, in fact, putting off his following for Jesus for what would be perhaps many, many, many years to come. And Jesus was telling him that if you want to follow me, if you're asking to follow me, if you're making that decision, well, you've got to seize this moment. Now's the time. And so there's a couple of thoughts here in this portion. The first thought is that this man, in his words, has revealed what his first priority is. When he says, first let me do this, and then I would love to follow you. And Jesus, in his response, is calling this man to action and teaching that if anyone would follow him, then Christ needs to be his or her life. First priority. The second thought that comes to mind when I read through this portion is that Jesus was wise and Jesus knew the human heart and Jesus knew well that if the man did not follow him, probably in that moment, he probably never would. How many of us have ever been really excited to sign up for something? Ever been really, you know, just taken back by an idea? Or, you know, maybe God laid something on your heart, you want to do it, but you failed to seize that moment. And all of a sudden, it's almost like it disappeared and just became a good idea. But it never became something that you ever acted on. You see, this was a moment that needed to be seized for this gentleman. Not one of those things that we want to do, but but then we never ever get back to it. But he needed to seize the moment. We need to seize moments in our lives when they present themselves. Jim Treliving, any, any Dragon's Den fans here? Anyone watch that show? Jim, Jim Treliving is better known as the owner of the Boston Pizza franchises. He was uh, born in Verdon, Manitoba. And I remember picking up his book a couple of years ago. It's called Decision, I think it's called Decision Points, but I, the, the cover looks like it just says Decisions. But um, he was an RCMP officer turned franchise owner, and he's one of Canada's most respected businessmen today. But he jokes in his book on decisions that the biggest decision that he ever made in his life was to eat pizza one night instead of Chinese food. 
And he, 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 he kind of starts the book off joking about that because he went to this little restaurant called Boston Pizza. And from that moment on, something developed in him where he had a vision for a completely different life. But his book is about all sorts of thoughts on how important it is to seize a moment and make a decision when an idea confronts us or where something presents itself. He suggests himself, now I'm not saying I completely agree with him here, but he suggests that we all get four to five decisions in our lives, major ones, depending on what we choose, which can really alter our path and really alter our destination. And so all throughout the book, he, he, he challenges the readers, make sure to seize these moments, make sure not to put them off, make sure not to overthink it, make sure that when a decision is, needs to be made on something that you want to do and you feel right about to go for it, and as Christians, I was thinking, or as potential followers of Christ, we are also faced with decisions that could alter our paths as well. And when they come, how do we respond to them? You see, the time for this man was now. Jesus needed to be first in his life, above everything else. Even above something that as a son was his duty to perform for his father. You see, the difficult sayings of Jesus didn't just end in this passage alone by any means. But let's quickly look at another in the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 14 and verses 25 and 26, it says large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Interesting again, the crowds are around. There's excitement building. And turning to them, he said, now catch this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So how do you really feel, right? That's what probably some of us are thinking when you read something like that. And you read something like that, and you think, whoa, 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 whoa. That, that sounds horrible. That sounds terrible. Was Jesus actually saying that we're supposed to hate the members of our own family? No. He wasn't being literal about that. He wasn't being literally telling us, you know, if you look through the whole teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, if you look through the other teachings of scriptures, the, the idea of honoring and loving one another, loving your family is unquestionably a biblical truth. We're supposed to love each other. We're supposed to care for one another. We're supposed to honor our parents, right? Honor one another. See, Jesus isn't actually telling us to go out and hate our families here as much as he's saying that if we want to follow him, if we want to come after him, he needs to be first. He needs to be our priority. Yes, even more than our own lives, we need to love and honor him. In verse 27, right after this, he adds in this little tidbit. He says, and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Carry your cross. In this culture, it wasn't just a nice piece of jewelry or a desirable symbol to the original audience. In fact, you know, we can redeem it ourselves here today because we know the ending of the story. We know what eventually happens. We know that he eventually, what he defeats on the cross and how he rises again and he's with us presently now. And so we can kind of re redeem that symbol a little bit in our culture. And so we wear it sometimes and it becomes something that reminds us of what Jesus did for us. But in these days, carrying your cross, the cross to many in these days was a very, very, very undesirable thing. You know, you run from the cross. You don't carry it. You don't go to the cross. You, you get going the other way when the cross even becomes a possibility. You see, and these were people who'd walked by crosses and seen the pain and the horrific scenes of people dying on them. 
They'd seen it all. They'd seen how brutal it was. And Jesus is letting those who want to follow him know that following him is going to involve putting ourselves second and putting him first. And a big way we do that is we take up our cross just like he did and we follow him. And to the original audience, this would have been a shocking statement. This would have been really a drawing line where you have to make a decision. Am I willing to follow this gentleman? You see, in John 3.30... John the Baptist, when he was on the scene, was tempted to, to raise his, you know, reputation and his teachings and to, to build himself up as a great leader. And, and, and he was tempted by the people saying, well, you know, that Jesus guy's baptizing more people than you now. What do you think of that? And all he could think, and he recognized the truth, that he was sent for a purpose, and the purpose was to honor God. And he says, he must become greater, and I must become less. And he recognized that. And he recognized that all of his life was about ensuring that Jesus is greater and, you know, him less. But that Jesus needed to come first. You see, Jesus will not call us into places that he hasn't or will not go himself. He is one who taught with authority by modeling and practicing what he taught. And so how did Jesus model this life of putting the kingdom first, of leaving comforts and safety in order to follow. Well, I think that's fairly self-explainable, but let's look at a couple verses here, just in case you think what Jesus is sending us into is a bit intense. John 3.16, very famous verse, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In John 1 and verse 14, we read this, And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. And so Jesus, in both of these passages, we read that he was, not only was Jesus sent, but he was also given for us. He was sent and given. He came from glory. He came from perfect relationship and oneness with the father in the heavenly realms, and he became like us. He became fully human, and yet he was still fully divine. And if we are to be like Jesus, what does it mean for us, as people sitting here this morning, to be given and to be sent? To be sent and given away. You see, the word for church is ecclesia, and it it basically describes this idea of being called out and gathered together. And so when we come to Christ, we are called out of something, and then we gather together. What are we called out of? Well, we're called out of the world and into fellowship with Jesus. But that's just the beginning. Don't stop there. and, And I'm afraid that sometimes we do stop there a little too often. We are gathered in, but that's only because we are then going to be sent back out. And unfortunately, as the church, we we sometimes emphasize the gathered-in aspect and forget the sending out part sometimes when we talk about these things. We emphasize being gathered in with believers, but we don't emphasize the importance and absolute necessity of being sent back out into the world, empowered by him. And so there's this gathering in and this sending out, and this is how we live as Jesus. To be sent out as Christ had been sent out means that we will have to sometimes leave security. We will have to enter into uncertainty and that we will be bringing light into the dark places. You see, Jesus left the security of perfect relationship in the heavenly realms to come down to earth. He subjected himself to uncertainty while on earth, and 
what he really did was he brought light and life into the darkness when he came. Our prevailing worldview, I would say, is opposite of this. Our prevailing worldview doesn't like the idea of leaving security, but the world is actually, I would say, a little more obsessed with finding security. Achieving security. That's like the top goal sometimes, isn't it? To achieve security, to be at rest and peace is what many aspire and dream of. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with planning ahead. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with looking after people who are going to be behind behind you. I'm not saying any of that, but I am saying when it becomes your first priority, you have missed it. And we see the opposite calling in the kingdom of God, the upside-down kingdom, if you will, that Jesus left the security of heaven and entered into the uncertainty of our physical realm, and he brought his light into darkness. And he calls us to do the same. You see, I believe that Jesus over and over again undermines the idea that we can find security in this world because our deepest security is not here, but our deepest security is truly found in Jesus himself. And that is where these verses get, these difficult verses that we read this morning are going to take us. You see, I was thinking about this this past week as I was studying, as I was preparing for this. The thought came to my mind, if the enemy can get us living for the 70, 80, maybe more years that we're down here, trying to achieve security and comfort right here in this world, he can distract us from the ways of living and becoming like Christ, which will often require sacrifice, self-denial, leaving our comfort zones. Is Jesus saying to be his followers that we have to become homeless people wandering with no fixed address? Is that what he's suggesting? No, I don't think that's what he's fully suggesting as a general rule, because people who followed Christ had careers, even in these times. They had homes. They had important places in their community, even some of them. But what Jesus is getting at here, I think that he's saying, is that, there are, that we are those who live not to create warm, comfortable places for ourselves, but we are called to be those who follow Jesus wherever that might lead, wherever he wants to take us. You see, our dominant goal isn't comfort, but our predominant goal in following Christ is simply obedience, wherever that might lead. Perhaps you might have to move, or perhaps you might have to do something that makes you a little uncomfortable, something that stretches your personality, and I think we've all probably been there before. And this is where counting the cost comes in. We get called out of our comfort zones, and we enter into discipleship to Christ. And in that place of leaving security and entering into uncertainty, he has called us to bear his light into the many places of this world that we go into. And he asks us to shine our light and to be a bright witness to this world. And so what's your comfort zone? I think comfort zones come in all sorts of shapes and sizes, and they're different from all of us. We all hide from different things. For some of us, it's roles and functions. You know, some of us are afraid that God may ask us to speak or God may ask us to talk to someone, and that makes us really kind of, Lord, I don't know, right? Apostle Paul seemed to sometimes be a little nervous from speaking. Some of us, you know, uh, it's going somewhere and going places, and, you know, you just want to stay where you're at, right? I just want to worship here, God. I just want to stay here. For some of us, it's actually maybe the exact opposite. Maybe for some of us, it's this idea of being still and quiet that scares us and that makes us very uncomfortable. 
because we prefer public, we prefer noise, we prefer things to be loud. And so this idea of being still and being quiet in your service to God, maybe that scares you, maybe that makes you uncomfortable. Either way, our comfort zones are all different and our callings are all different. And so where do we hide? Where are our hiding places? What is our comfort and our safety zone? Some of us, you know, we hide because we fear rejection from people. We hide relationally because it makes us uncomfortable to talk to strangers or to start up new conversations. Maybe we face rejection in the past or believe lies about ourselves that we have nothing to give, and so maybe that stops us from wanting to go out and tell people about Christ. Sometimes we avoid certain relationships because they're difficult and challenging. And by the way, I got good news for you. Jesus knew all about all of that when he was on earth. He can relate. He knew how, he knew how that all felt. You see, in John 1.11, it says it like this. He came to his own. His own. And those who were his own did not receive him. Rejection. Jesus knew all about leaving perfect acceptance and perfect relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and he came to a place where he would experience relational rejection, and still he came. Still he thought that we were important enough for him to follow through on this mission. You see, leaving comfort zones, that's a big part of what it means to count the cost to follow Jesus. I won't say leave your comfort zone and it's going to be all fine and all good. I'm not going to tell you that today. I'm not going to say that once you leave your comfort zone, you're never going to experience rejection. Actually, you might experience rejection. I'm not going to say that when you leave your comfort zone that, you know, that everything's going to be easy. Actually, some of it might be difficult. I told you this wasn't the, you know, pep rally of sermons this morning. But it may get frustrating and challenging on the other side of being sent, but it doesn't mean, even though it gets frustrating, even though it gets challenging, even though you're experiencing things you don't want to experience, it doesn't mean that you're not sent. But that God wants to use it in some way to still advance his kingdom and his purposes, even through you. You see, leave our comfort zones and bearing Christ's light, being about his work and what he desires to do. We are summoned to follow him wherever he goes, and we're never alone, but his presence is with us, and we'll talk about that more next week. But maybe for you today, you're afraid to step out into something God is calling you into because maybe you even fear failure. Or maybe you've experienced failure in something before, and it's making you timid to even try it again. I've been there. And let me say this clear this morning, that just because you fail at something does not mean you are not called. The disciples failed over and over and over again as they followed Jesus in their years with him, and yet they were still called. Jesus never took that from them. And Jesus is the Lord who takes regular people, raises them up, calls them out of their comfort zones, and walks with them and does amazing things through them. That's the Jesus that we serve. That's the Jesus that we follow. And so Jesus in this portion of scripture is, is letting these guys eager to follow him. These guys who, you know, things are happy, healings just happen, the crowds are huge, and these guys are, you know, in the spur of the moment, ready to make a decision to follow him. Jesus is telling them that, yes, you've seen the healing, you've seen the miracles, you've heard the teachings, and you've liked this, but following me will call you from comfort. And Jesus himself modeled it first. 
Jesus doesn't expect us to do something that he hasn't done. Jesus doesn't expect perfection before we come to him. He doesn't expect us to have it all together. In fact, he knows that we don't. That's very clear and apparent to him. But he calls us anyways, just as we are, to live for him, walk with him, make mistakes, fail. But also with his help, we're going to find that at times we'll see some success. And we will rejoice in victories. And we will rejoice in amazing things with him. And he's just honest at the outset. Not after you've gotten yourself into something. Not after you've decided to go somewhere, all of a sudden he drops, oh, by the way. You know, I didn't, didn't tell you this before you made the decision. But he's honest out the, out, at, at the outset that following him will have its costs. But like we read in Matthew 6.33 before this, you know, seek first his kingdom, seek first his righteousness, and all these things, all these things you worry about, all these things you're concerned about will be given to you as well. This verse, this passage in chapter 8, is still in context with what we read in chapter 6. And his promises are the same. This verse is in the context of following God into the world or into the work that he'll call you into. And based out of that, as we seek him first, he will provide for us. He's given us that promise. But what happens, and here's the question, here's where it really, I think, gets down to it. What happens when you get to that point where your agenda and God's agenda for your life don't match, don't match up. They don't meet together. You're on opposite kind of paths. Whose agenda wins? This is where I think we truly find out in our walk with God whether we are a consumer or whether we are followers. And I know it sounds tough. But this is where I think it will be revealed to us based on what decision we make in those moments, whether we are content to be consumers or whether we're content to be followers of Jesus. And I'll explain what that means. Let me, let me ask you a question. Why do we sometimes become Christians? What is a benefit of becoming a Christian, right? And I've heard people say this all the time, right? I've become a Christian because, you know, I want to go to heaven and I want to live with him. And, you know, that is a big benefit of following Jesus. But many of us come into the Christian faith as consumers to begin with, but we're not necessarily wanting to be followers. You see, because the truth is, is that if you follow the teachings of Jesus, I 100% believe that you will become a better person. That you will become a better husband or a better spouse. You will become a better employee. All of it serves you and it works for you and it's not a bad thing in and of itself. There's a lot of benefits in following Jesus. There's a lot of things in your life that will change that you'll actually see, wow, this is really positive. This is really neat. This is working out to my benefit. This is nice. There are huge benefits to following Jesus, but there will come times where we'll have to deny ourselves and deny our agenda and embrace his. And it's in those moments is where we're going to find out whether we're content just to consume and reap the rewards or whether we're wanting to follow regardless of our comfort. You see, in Mark chapter 8 and verses 33 and 34... Jesus is having a chat with his disciples, and, you know, amazing things are happening here. Jesus turns and looks at his disciples. He's telling them, sorry, I'll give you a little context. He's telling them about all the bad stuff that's going to happen to him here. All these things are going to happen. You know, Peter had confessed him as Christ, and he's saying, you know, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to have to suffer. You know, I'm going to die. All these terrible things are going to happen. And Peter gets up and says, Lord, this will never happen to you. Surely this could never happen to you. 
But then Jesus turns and looks at his disciples and he rebukes Peter and he says these words, get behind me, Satan. He said, now catch this. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. And so Jesus rebukes Peter here and says, get behind me, Satan. And he says these words, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You're still focused on human things. You're, you're not thinking like me. You're not thinking where my agenda is. You're not looking what I just told you. You're not accepting what I just told you, but you're really still looking out for what you think should happen in yourself. And eventually, as we follow Jesus, as we grow in our walk with him, we have to move beyond just looking out for human concerns ourselves. We have to look to his. You know, it's almost like Jesus looked at him and said, you know, you're kind of following me for what you get out of this, Peter. But at some point, you have to open up your hands and let go of your agenda and embrace my will. You see, and many abandoned Jesus. In fact, the disciples all scattered, right? And he went to the cross by himself. And many abandoned him because there were many people who were consumers. They were following him as long as it worked out for them. But the minute that sacrifice was required, they just walked and they, they were nowhere to be find, found and they kind of disappeared. And after they abandoned Jesus, at the end, they're all back. And what they saw happen, what they saw in the risen Christ, it changed their lives and they're all back. And Jesus doesn't say to them, you know what, you guys, you know, deserted me right off the hop. I'm not going to use you anymore. But Jesus uses them all who came back. And then they gave their lives for what they saw. A resurrected Jesus. And they gave up on their personal agendas. And they adopted gods. And they became fully fledged followers. But it took a while. It was a process. It happened over time. What happens when you and, you, you and your agenda are in conflict with that of Jesus? This will tell you a lot about yourself. It really will. Your words may say, you know what? Yeah, this is what I should do. This makes the most sense. But inwardly, there will be conflict. And you'll feel it. And your words and God's words will be in conflict. And it's not going to line up. How many of us have experienced that moment where you know God was saying to you, you need to do this or you need to step out into this. And you were fighting it, you know, because it didn't necessarily work out with what you wanted in the moment. Stanley gives some good thoughts on what this will feel like, on what this little wrestling match with God sometimes feels like. Number one, the first thought is that it'll feel like a moral imperative. This is the moment where I need to decide whether I am a Jesus consumer or whether I am a Jesus follower. Because it's just going to feel like a right or wrong issue. There are times in our faith walk where we know God is saying something to us and we know he, he wants obedience and we know in our hearts that this is just literally right and wrong. We can't excuse ourselves out of this time. We know that we're either going to choose to do his will or go the opposite way. So it's going to feel like a moral imperative. But let's just say you do decide to choose God's will. Then you have another thing that's going to happen in your life. Because it'll kind of feel like a death or a death of something. And for some of us, it'll be in the sense of walking away from opportunities, other opportunities. 
or walking away from things that we want to be. You know, it may, might feel like a death. You might have to lay something down. You may have to go somewhere you didn't want to go. It may feel like that old dream that you had for yourself wasn't necessarily God's dream, and I just, ugh, and it's difficult. And it might not feel good. What if you have to walk away from the ideal situation in your mind? Or the ideal position? Or you have to leave when you want to stay? Or what if you have to stay when all you want to do is move? Your agenda and God's agenda for your life are in conflict. And so to choose God's way sometimes might feel like the death of something. But you don't have to fear this. And here's the good news in all this is because it also... It's also what makes up a defining moment for you. Your answer, your decision to follow Jesus will become a defining moment for you. Because it's in those moments when you decide to follow Jesus, when your agenda and when God's agenda are colliding, it's in those moments when you decide to follow Christ, you begin to discover whose you truly are. You begin to discover whose you truly are. And what an amazing feeling that is. It's a defining moment. You never forget it. You look back at that part in your life and you say, you know what, that's when I made the choice that I was going to follow his agenda over mine. It was difficult. It was tough. It was a decision I had to make. It felt like a bit of a death to something. But it was a defining moment. That's the moment I point to when I remember when I decided, God, I'm going here. And it's in those moments that you discover that you truly, truly, truly belong to him and you truly follow him. It's in those moments that you'll discover that you have moved from simple consumer, you've moved to follower. It's in those moments where your trust grows greater, where your little bitty faith collides with God's faithfulness and God becomes alive to you in a way that he's never been before. It's that moment where you think, God, I want what you want more than what I want. You see, wanting isn't bad. We all want stuff. Lots of stuff I want right now. It's not that wanting makes you evil. It's just that sometimes we know it's not what he wants. And then we have conflict. And a Jesus follower says, I want you, I want what you want, Jesus, more than what, even what I want. I want to have what you want for me more than what I want for my life. But in the long run, if you make this decision to follow Jesus, it will become a defining moment for you. Because if you decide to say no to you and yes to your, yes to your Savior, in that moment you will discover whose you really are. And you won't forget it. But we have to remember there's a cost. Not just the benefit. And that's a defining moment. It's like, wow, this cost me because I have chosen to follow Jesus. I can't to teach on this without quoting Dietrich Bonhoeffer at least once, who wrote the book, The Cost of Discipleship. One of my favorite books. One of my favorite Christian books I've read. He said, to deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self, to see only him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. Once more, all that self-denial can say is he leads the way, keep close to him. And isn't that what following Jesus is all about? Letting him lead and staying close to him? You see, Jesus is looking for followers who will, are willing to go all in. Any poker players in the house today? Probably don't want to admit to it. Maybe you do want to admit to it. But, you know, there's that moment when I play poker where, you know, it's just exciting just to be like, chips, see ya, right? And you push your chips in and you go all in and it becomes a moment that you realize that your game, you know, could be over at this point or it could end up really well for you. 
but going all in and giving everything is what you need. And there's a world out there, and here's the important part, there's a world out there who needs you to do it. And they need you. And so going all in, it might require us to give up some things that we love or bring us comfort. There's going to be stuff that's tough to part with, but going all in, making Jesus first in our lives, will bring you the true life that God has always desired for you and desired for me. Faith says we go this way. Everything in culture says we go that way. And sometimes, even tearfully, you have to decide, I'm going to follow Jesus on this one. When I was in college, me and Joe, my buddy Joe, were sitting around our dorm room, and there was this worship artist named Jason Upton. I don't know if any of you have ever heard Jason Upton before, but he put up a new album in our final year of college, and the album was called Jacob's Dream. And the second song on the album was called In the Silence. And so one of our things we would do is we often go pick up a CD, then just come back to the dorm and kind of sit around and play it and listen to it a couple times. And the second song starts playing on that album. And it's this faint piano. It's really soft music. And he's got a powerful voice, like a really strong, powerful voice. And I remember hearing that second song that day. I wasn't really believing what I was hearing. And here were the lyrics. He said, I'm tired of telling you, you have me when I know you really don't. And then he said, I'm tired of telling you I'll follow when I know I really won't. And I was thinking, like, this is so different than the I surrender stuff, you know, that we're used to hearing. This kind of caught us off guard. I think we looked at each other and smiled and laughed, and we couldn't believe the honesty of this song. And then he said these words. He said, because I'd rather stand here speechless with no great words to say if my silence is more truthful, then my ears can hear how to actually walk in your way. And as I heard that song, it kind of reminded me of the words in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're not going to go there this morning, but I recommend you check it out. Write down the reference. Ecclesiastes 5. It's about sometimes the best thing we can do before God is to just be quiet. Just be quiet. Don't make all sorts of promises. Don't make all sorts of boasts. Don't come into his, his presence and make all sorts of declarations. But sometimes the best thing we can do before God is just be silent and allow him to speak to us and allow him to help us. The words of those songs resonated to me. I appreciated the honesty because I don't know about you, but there are some times where, you know, I say I'll follow and I know in my heart of hearts, you know, this is something I really don't want to do or I haven't signed up for. And because I'm such a nice pastor today, okay, and I know that I've fallen short time and time again. I'm going to give us some wiggle room this morning as we end. I heard a pastor once say, and it was very helpful to me. So here it is. Maybe for some of us this morning, our prayer needs to be a little more honest as we hear a message like this. And maybe rather than make all sorts of decisions in this moment, maybe for some of us, we need to just pray these words. Lord, I want to want what you want more than what I want. Maybe for some of us, that's the most honest prayer we can give today. Lord, I want to want what you want more than what I want. I, I, that, that's really my desire, and I'm struggling with it. Because maybe you've heard the stories of great obedience. Maybe you've heard amazing stories of faith, and you, you just get amazed by them. You get excited by them. They, they get you going. You think, man, what an amazing thing that person did. And you sit there, and you think to yourself, I don't know if I could do that. I really don't know if I can. And you want to want, but you just don't want it. And you want to desire the things of God more than your own agenda. And maybe you need to go to him today 
and ask that he help you to lay down your agenda and embrace his agenda in all areas of your life. Maybe that's the most honest prayer we could bring before him this week as we look through a passage on the cost of following him. On a passage where excuses don't work. On a passage where we know what's required to walk with him. And there's going to be this temptation that comes in your mind. It'll come time and time again. That's going to be, you know what, it's just too hard. So, so see ya. I'll be back when it doesn't work out. But when that temptation comes in those moments, just pause and pray. God, to be honest, I don't want to do this. I don't necessarily want to leave this. I don't overly want to do your will here. But Heavenly Father, I want to want what you want. More than what I want. More, more than even what I want today. And stay there. Stay in that moment. Stay there long enough for your Heavenly Father to speak to you and to guide you. And do the will of your Father who loves you more than what you want to do. Blessed is the one who chooses the, doing, to do the will of God rather than imposing their own will on God. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And Jesus wants to be our first priority. And he wants us to put him first. And so, for many of us, I'm not sure how to end this, but for many of us, we're going to respond differently today. I wish I can call us for prayer, honestly, and that we'd, you know, come up here, get prayed for, and we'd be automatically all willing to leave our comforts behind in an instant, but it just doesn't really seem to work that way, does it? This is something that we wrestle with. This is the tension that we live in as followers of Jesus. As I was studying this this past week, I thought, I have to preach this. I thought this, this passage is like a, right? In the middle of like a really happy moment of something that Jesus is doing. And yet, I think this is good for us. And so many of us will respond differently today. For some of us, we know that God has called us into more. And maybe that will involve simply embracing community when you prefer to be alone. Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe that will mean using your talents and abilities to begin to volunteer here in our church community or in our city somewhere. Maybe that's a start for you. Maybe that's something God's been calling you into and you've been just kind of putting that voice off. Maybe it's to a new level. Maybe, maybe it's going to be, require saying, you know, no to something that your flesh really, really, really desires and you're going to have to make a decision and laying that down is going to feel like a death, but in the end it's going to be a defining moment for you. Because once you make that decision, you're going to rest in the... the just the joy of knowing whose you are, whose you truly are. You see, we all have different stories. But at the end of the day, our first priority needs to be following Jesus. We need to choose him first. And so however you respond today, however you pray this week, my prayer for each one of us is that we want to want what he wants more than what we want. And we get to that place in our lives daily where following him becomes something that becomes first every single day because of what he has done in our heart and in our lives. Where his first priority as he left the comforts and came down to earth. Jesus left comfort. He left perfect relationship. He came down to a place where he was going to experience rejection himself. And it wasn't easy, but he needs to be our first priority as well because we were his. Amen? So I leave that with you today. Let me pray. Father, I just thank you uh, for your word today.
And um, Lord, that you aren't content to leave us as we are, but that you desire to change us and you desire to make us more like you and you desire to bring us into a greater place of relationship with you each day. And my prayer is for each one of us this week as we contemplate what it means to follow you, when we contemplate where it is you're calling us, where it is you're sending us. Maybe it's our workplace. Maybe it's our offices. Maybe it's the coffee shop. Maybe it's our own family. Maybe it's another country. I don't know. But Lord, wherever you're, you're, you're calling us to, whatever work you're calling us to, help us, Lord, to desire what you desire more than desiring what we want. Help us, Lord, to put you first. Give us strength. Give us what we need because, Holy Spirit, we can't do it without you. And so I just pray your blessing upon each person here today. And I pray that we would leave encouraged that you do love us and that you have called us and that you do walk with us. And we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Next week, we will look at weak faith in the hands of a gracious God. A little happier. But for now, I'll ask everyone to stand. My prayer is that this word would just do whatever it needs to do in each of our lives today. But in ancient times, the one who blessed did so by extending hands, and those who want to receive a blessing did likewise. And so if you'd like to receive a blessing, please extend your hands. And here it is, Soul Sanctuary. For your goodness and generosity in giving us all we need, help us to praise you, O God. In every circumstance of life, in good times and bad, help us to trust you, O God. In love and faithfulness, with all that we have and all that we are, help us to serve you, O God. As we speak or write or listen to those nearby or far away, help us to share your love, O God in our plans and work for ourselves and for others, help us to glorify and put you first, O God. And in every thought and word and deed, by the power of your Holy Spirit this week, may we live for you, O God. Amen. God bless. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.